And if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become, from selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here is your host, Bill Florio. Yeah, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is MC Charlie Boswell. Hey, it's Dave Harrison. We got Dennis Tech today, one of Dave's favorite fan obsessions. <laughs> I know. Listen, that sounds creepy, and it doesn't need to be creepy. What no, I'm saying good. is, this is, creepy. this is big. We've done 70 plus episodes of this thing, and I have to say, Jesus in all honesty, Christ, 70 plus. Oh. Yeah, we're, we're yeah we're we're up there, but I, I have to say honestly, probably 50. Where do I go to get my week back? <laughs> probably 50 of the people that we've interviewed have been people that I've loved and owned their records and all of that stuff. But Dennis is up there. Radio Birdman's up there is one of my all time favorite bands. I mean. I've had two Radio Birdman shirts in my life that I've worn until they fell apart. And, I had and two meatloaf shirts. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. Well, if you got a third one, then you could be like, this is my third meatloaf shirt. The other two are destroyed, but two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> one of them is destroyed, don't <laughs> Well, I, I am a big fan of reading books about disaster at sea. So this is also very interesting to me. <laughs> what does that mean? I like reading about maritime disasters for some Are reason. Are you into like flotsam and jetsam? I guess so. I'm, I'm not into riding on boats. But Did I'm you read about, like, the, about the USS Indianapolis? Like that kind of stuff? No, nah, I read like the General Slocum. Man, and, that's uh, depressing. Okay. This the guy Slocum is, book, the this Slocum guy is totally depressing. about the General Slocum in the backseat of his, his, his car. <laughs> and uh, the, I used to pass that plaque all the time when I lived Squalus, in Astoria. The Squalus, like the first submarine disaster is pretty interesting. Anyway. <laughs> this, this podcast is not a submarine disaster, so you can keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one went pretty smoothly. Today we talked Smooth about sailing. coffee. We talked about Kona coffee and what makes a coffee a Kona coffee. We you talked know what about was a disaster? The White Castle in Jackson Heights on Northern Boulevard closing <laughs> last week. That was a disaster. It was Speaking covered in that don't caution have tape. Coffee. It was covered in <laughs> caution tape. Yeah, uh, that didn't stop us. This is a really interesting career here. We got a Navy doctor, ER doctor, and then coffee grower. And what was he like? He's Macadamia responsible nut. for responsible for bringing punk rock to the lower hemisphere, basically. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's a definitely a little bit of like a buckaroo bonsai kind of uh, vibe coming off of Dennis as far Captain as like Captain Cook, Captain Cook. How, how many badass <laughs> things? How can you be a doctor, rock star, coffee grower, surfer? Uh, surfer. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I feel like we could have named any badass thing and he would have been like, yeah, I did that for a couple of years. It got boring. Stop doing it. <laughs> if, if Dennis was, was Captain Cook, he wouldn't have gotten eaten. That's true. <laughs> I can attest to that. And I'll leave you with that. Let's roll the tape. <laughs> 
Okay, so we usually start this off where you introduce yourself and you tell everyone what you do for a living. My name is Dennis Tech, and I play music, and I grow coffee. Awesome. <laughs> that uh, non-slave labor coffee? Well, it is slave labor coffee, but the slave is me. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you enjoy, did you get into coffee because of your love of coffee or, be, or for the money? Well, I do love coffee, but that's not the reason that I got into it. And, and there isn't any money in it. But there was this area where I live is Kona in this, the Kona coffee growing area of Hawaii. And my wife and I moved out here about six years ago and we took over this farm that my parents had and they had macadamia nut trees. And there's a lot of the acreage that didn't have anything on it. And I thought, well, let's just try coffee just for something to do. Because it's, I've always liked the coffee that this region produces. Do you still grow nuts? Yeah, we still do the nuts. Yeah. What's, is, are macadamias the kind of thing where they the weren't really... pay for the coffee. Yeah. Well, is it true that the macadamias weren't really sold in mass because they couldn't make a machine to crack them properly until like the 70s? I don't know. That, <laughs> That's what I heard. That certainly could be. Could it be takes true. like 300 um, pounds of pressure or something to crack the shell. Yeah, they're hard to crack. Yeah, that's right. We, you know, we don't process them at all. We just we sell the the, the nuts in their husks because they have a husk, and then they have the hard shell inside that, and we just sell that to this this wholesaler, and then they do all that. That's their problem. Yeah, but with the does, does do Mister Peanut get involved? No. Yeah. Is there a macadamia equivalent to Mister Peanut? <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe there's. Yeah, I guess they're they're probably used to be that guy from Magnum PI, I think, on the commercials. Yeah, from Macadamias. My dad was a professor at the University of Michigan, and uh, I I grew up in Ann Arbor and went to school there, and then I moved to Australia after that. But my parents retired and came out here from Ann Arbor, and I think that they they got this place to grow mac nuts, and we didn't really start coffee until. Um, until I came out here about six years ago, planted the, you know, I, I planted the trees myself, dug the holes, planted the trees and, but they, everything grows really fast here. So we started to produce coffee after about three years. Oh, wow. So it's not like wine where you have to wait for the grape vines to mature and all of that. Cause I feel like there's a lot of similarities as far as like the definitions of where you can grow wine, certain wines, it sounds very similar with, with Kona. Is there a huge governing body that kind of looks over what you're doing and, and what you can put the name of it on? That's really a good question. There should be. Mm. And, and the, the Kona coffee farmers have been sort of fighting for that to, to have an appellation that's protected like, like you would protect. Like an olive oil or... You know, Cote du Rhone wine or Bordeaux or something like that. You can't call it that unless it actually grows there. And but Kona Coffee, the name gets used by all sorts of things that are really Kona Coffee. So it's pretty unregulated. I remember Pepsi made a Pepsi Kona. It was like Pepsi mixed with coffee flavor. <laughs> it didn't do very well. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know why they, they probably picked Kona because they didn't. No one would complain, or no one right. could. Yeah, right. I've always wondered because I because you go to Hawaii and you hit the 
you hit the the shops at the airport on the way out and they're just selling tons of quote unquote Kona coffee and you you never know I mean what it actually is if it's truly Kona or not. Yeah, they by according to the law here that you can call it a Kona blend if it's got 10% Kona coffee in it. But it's been that's been looked at recently in a lawsuit and found that a lot of those Kona coffee blends don't have any Kona coffee in it at all. It's just it's completely devoid of it. There should be a special police force for it because the the olive oil folks have one and they wear like an olive oil police. Yeah, they wear Versace designed uniforms. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, a a lot of things get protection, like. Georgia peaches and Idaho potatoes and Napa Valley wine and all these things are protected. But Matt Kona coffee so far, they've been trying for 20 years to get that through the legislature, but it it hasn't, it's the, the, there's too much money in, in blending coffee and selling really garbage coffee as Kona. There's just too much money in it. You can't fight that. Is the, so is the land in that area incredibly expensive now? Has it become like Napa where like you have to have a pretty sizable amount of money to buy into that area or is it still mostly generational farmers? It's mostly generational farmers and and it hasn't been expensive until now, although it looks like the prices are starting to go up now. So, so you, you were a surgeon for a long time. No, are there I was, any... I, I was right? in the emergency room doctor, sorry. Is there any... Is that like a different world? Is there any skills you learned as an emergency room doctor that you could apply to the current things you're working on? Yeah, I think just general attention to detail is one thing and striving for high quality in whatever it is that you're doing is you you come out with, you, you certainly come away from a medical career with that. I mean, you don't settle for, for anything that's not the best that you can put out there. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you still involved in medicine at all, or are you, is that part of your career? Or are you retired from that? I quit that. When I got to be 65, I didn't want to be the old guy that hung around too long and got slow, and I wanted to quit when I was still at the top of the game. I was working in a teaching hospital in Sydney called Royal Prince Alfred, and teaching residents and interns and running shifts there at at their ER. And the young guys coming up are so good. It's, it's, I I just got to that point where I thought, yeah, time to go. (laughs) Leave it to the young guns to come up and take over. I I don't know. I found it, I find it hard to believe that you could be slow. I I heard the the last album with James Williams and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not possible yet, but uh. (laughs) yeah, the idea is to get out before that. (laughs) Well, you don't mind being the old guy behind the guitar, right? You get, you're you're getting more praise there. (laughs) Yeah. And no one's life is at stake. I hope. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're not killing anybody, right? <laughs> I don't know. I saw the Stones a few not, years they ago. They might not like the record or something. But <laughs> you get a bad review. It's that's a little bit different. <laughs> it is weird, though. We get to the point now where you start seeing some of the guys that you you loved growing up that are still out there playing, and we're getting to that point now where you start seeing guys, and you're like, ah, maybe you shouldn't be doing this anymore. <laughs> yeah, you do see that. I mean. I went to see the Stones in November in Detroit, and and the Stones were great. The Rolling Stones were great. And the, the first time I ever saw them 
was in Detroit in 1969. And, and I saw him again just this past November. And Keith wasn't there the whole time. He was like in and out. And, and it, it was a little bit tough to watch and at times. Ron Wood kept it going and the rhythm section was great. And Mick Jagger was amazing. He was like a force of nature. But I think old Keith was like, I think we've seen the, you know, we, we've seen the best of him in the past. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> he, he, told me this morning that in Newark, there's a lobby of a building. They have a 40 foot mural of uh, Keith Richards' face, and they, they say that's tough to look at. <laughs> Why is it in Newark? Newark airport? <laughs> no, no, I just said Newark. Did I say the word airport? Oh, I imagine it at the airport right next to CBGB's. No, no, in, in Newark, into, into, into like uh, some lobby of some office building there. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's random. It's that's like, random. It's like and a weird. high def photo, like, and it's like, <laughs> so you can see every blemish and whatever. It's like, well, that should fit right in there. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I don't know. I, in that case, I'm waiting for the Detroit airport to have like the Ashton brothers and have, have a big uh, Wayne Kramer mural up there. But they, do, they should do, yeah. But they're just like Iggy's crotch. Of course, the Detroit airport's all about Motown. That's it is, true. yeah. I mean, that's my, so my wife is from outside of Detroit. So we go up a lot because there's still family there. And I remember when I, we first started dating, I hadn't spent a lot of time there, but I asked her, I was like, oh, like, where's, is there a fortune records museum? Is there this and that? And she's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. So I'm looking it up and I'm like, oh, there's no understanding of the history of Detroit music other than Motown, really, I felt like. And that was really disappointing to me. I thought this is one of the most rock and roll places ever. And they don't, there's not an understanding outside of the Motown influence there. So there's nothing for, we went to Ann Arbor. I found the uh, White Panther house and I had to go drive past that and do all that stuff. But I mean, like, it's not that I expect that there should be a plaque out of, outside of that. But I mean, still, I feel like there should be a better understanding of what came out of that area. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's, of course, Motown's always been the thousand pound gorilla in the room. It's like the, the impact of it worldwide is so huge that it sh overshadows everything else. But I think that everywhere you go, every country you go to, there are Stooges fans. But they didn't so, make the whiz. And, and <laughs> at, the, at, at the end of their life, they, they were able to finally get some, uh, at least get paid well and a lot of recognition and play some big shows. So it was better late than never. <laughs> Definitely. So let's talk about that. I'm going to kind of go back more to the beginning now. So you're growing up in, in Ann Arbor and in, in Michigan, and you're seeing all these amazing shows. You're seeing the stones, you're seeing the birth of this amazing rock movement. And what leads you to make the decision to go to Australia for school? That's probably just to get away from, it's not that, Ann Arbor was a bad place and I had to get away from it. It was an amazing place. But when you're in it, you don't realize that how great it really is. I mean, it was, I thought everywhere was going to be, the people were being able to see great music everywhere. And I didn't realize how special it really was. And you're 18 years old and you want to, well, one of the things was I wanted to learn how to surf. There's no surf, there's no surf in Ann Arbor, and especially not on the Huron River, and yeah, and, <laughs> and I wanted to get as far away from my parents as possible too. And and I I had been in Australia for traveling with my my family, and I really liked it, and it was great. And so I thought, oh, I'm just going to go there. What, and what what inspired you to go into medicine? 
I had a idealistic conception of it that this is something that would be you could take it anywhere, always have a job, and it would be something that would always be helpful to the community that you were in. That that was my idea of medicine. I just had a picture of you with like on the surfboard with a stethoscope. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> like the idealism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I my I come from a family of engineers. My my dad was an engineer. My grandparents engineers, and I just what didn't kind of engineer? I, want, I wanted to do something else. My dad was a, a chemical engineer, so I want to do something else. And medicine it's very interesting. You know, in fact, I'm still interested in it. There's the there's always new stuff to learn there and and our the, the knowledge of medicine is still at a pretty low level i mean it's, it's compared to what's out there it's one of the things that's interesting is that every 10 years the medical knowledge base changes by 50% so every 10 seconds in washington yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah right they got a lot to learn i guess right so every 10 years, you, you got a half the stuff that you thought was true is not true. And only looking forward, you don't know which 50% it is. So you just you got to do the best with what you got. But it's changing all the time. And so it stays interesting. And yeah, that, that was my reason for it. Is there a part of you that that is, I mean, I know it's a nightmare and I have healthcare professionals in my family that are dealing with it every day, but is there a part of you that, that kind of wishes you were still in it helping with the COVID situation or are you kind of glad you got out when you did? I'm glad I got out when I did. Well, did they call you back? The ERs that I worked in were already over capacity and completely stressed and understaffed for what they were trying to do. So I just can't imagine what it would have been like to work after the, the pandemic hit, especially just with the the volume of patients would have been pretty tough. Of course, you, would, you, you probably would have been in the ER before they put someone else there that wasn't as seasoned, right? Yeah. Uh, no, nobody called me back. No, because when I was in, in the hospital here in uh, March 2020 for COVID, this nurse was taking my uh, blood and stuff, and he said they called him back in. He was retired. And then he told me that he was in Vietnam, and he jumped out of a plane, and his parachute didn't open. But he was there, so I guess he survived. Well, that's uh, – wait, was the parachute related to him being yeah, called a back for a story to tell back? you? Yeah, like <laughs> – or... to tell me something. I'm in the freaking hospital in COVID. It's people everywhere. And so he's told or me the it's story. Like, it's like, hey, I jumped down. out of- Oh, I see. So it's like I jumped out of a plane without a parachute, and I made it. You're going to be yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt oh, I like about that. It, you know, I think that's it, cool. <laughs> and plus, he's taking your blood pressure and taking blood and stuff, and if he distracts you, it's good. Yeah, sounds like a good guy. It'd be interesting to hear his backstory. Yeah, I'm assuming the parachute probably opened partially because he said like, he landed <laughs> in a tree or something. But I mean, I'm assuming it didn't not open at all. But. Or he's really lucky. Really lucky. Yeah, seriously. So, so when you look at um. The decision you made to to go to Australia and study medicine, was that something that when you got there, you were like, oh, no, I made a mistake. It's not like Ann Arbor. How music obsessed were you? And was that a deciding factor in starting to play music in Australia to kind of try and get something going like what you had at home? Yeah, it. it I was aware that Australia had a very vibrant and energetic music scene in the 60s. And there were a lot of great bands there in the mid-60s. 
and I thought it would still be like that, but it wasn't. I mean, there was really nothing going on musically when I got there. So I didn't think that I had made a mistake going there. I sort of saw it as an opportunity to write on a blank page. So, so, so in effect, you're kind of teaching the people that you're playing with and were they aware of the, the Australian history of music? Like, were they familiar with the easy beats, for instance, were they like, or did you have to kind of educate them to get them to a point? They were all aware of that. The the easy, in fact, the easy beats were still uh, huge by then. Yeah. I mean, I mean, their legacy was by then Stevie Wright was working solo. He had a solo band. And I actually was on the same bill with him a couple of times. But the whole scene was, it's just sort of a post-hippie malaise. There's like California bluegrass kind of thing going on. Yeah, sort of electric boogie blues or Hobbit music. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting because I feel like... Yeah, what's is that just like that Led Zeppelin you know, like song? Fairport, you know, Fairport Convention or, you know, <laughs> like singing about Celtic gnomes and things like that. <laughs> you know, I, so like like Greg Brady. Yeah. <laughs> Greg Brady. His musical. His music was good. <laughs> just just with him with a guitar and nothing else? No, I'm talking about like when you yeah, had I'm that Yeah, ta- I'm talking um, about the, the whole big. Johnny, uh, Johnny Bravo with that costume and everything. <laughs> So, so when I, when I realized I wanted to go there, I, I needed to make some money. I, I and uh, when I graduated high school, I, that year in 1970, I went to work at, at Chevrolet at assembly plant. And since this interviews about the day jobs, that it's, that was really great. Incredible money for the time. Yeah. My, my dad did that right out of high school as well at GM. All right. Here. My wife's family is a good. Ford family, so I got in trouble. <laughs> when it, the first time she took me home to Michigan, I told her grandfather that I didn't think Ford deserved the bailout, and <laughs> I thought he was going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you rent like a Hyundai and drive over yeah. there too? So yeah, I worked at the Chevrolet Nova assembly plant in Willow Run, and overtime was twelve fifty an hour. That sounds great. And was, what were you doing? Were we, Wait, what was your job on there? the assembly line? Yeah, I was on the engine line. Oh, really? So what did you have to do? I started out as a sweeper because they, when the engines come down the line, there's all the different little ports where things go, where things screw into the engine are, are filled with these plastic caps. These and And so guys that are working on the engine line pop these caps off all the time. Oh, and, okay. and so the floor under that line is littered with these this plastic and you just sweep it out from underneath these guys. And we were making 65 cars an hour. And so you'd sweep it out into the aisle and then the power sweeper would come pick it up. What's and the power it, sweeper? What, what is that? Like a Zamboni or like something? A guy rides, It's it looks like a high-low, but it's it's got a sweeping mechanism underneath it. Okay. And he just and sucks I, up those caps. Yeah, sucks everything up that's in the aisle. And I then I started put, putting the motor mounts on. And if that's just using a power wrench, you got a, bo- a huge box of bolts next to you. And if it's a six, it takes two motor mounts. And if it's an eight, you put three on. And you, there, there was a 
12 and a half minute break mid morning and then 25 minute lunch and then 12 and a half minute break in the middle of the second half. That's how I managed to save up enough money to go to Australia. Got it. That makes sense. It's expensive even now. Yeah. I took the long way. You know, I went to London first, hung out there for a while and then uh, down through Europe. And then I got a boat that went around Africa and then over to Australia. Did it run around Africa, not through the Suez Canal? Yeah. Yeah. I went out through Gibraltar and then down around Africa. Yeah. And your parents were okay with that? I mean, did were they worried about your decisions at all or were you not even listening? I wasn't even listening. I mean, well, they were, I guess they were worried, but they supported me of what I wanted to do. I mean, they didn't pay for it, but they, they gave me a goodbye kiss and said, good luck. And do you feel like when you started playing music in Australia, I know there's a lot has been made out of the the Detroit sound and a lot of that coming from assembly lines and working in the auto plants and all that. And it's a big part of the MC5 kind of yeah. legacy. Yeah, Wayne talks about that all the time. Do you feel that's true? Do you feel like that's the rhythm that, that you know, because you definitely have that distinctive sound that, you know, that even though the band was based in Australia, you have that Detroit guitar sound. I wonder how much of that is like subliminal versus how much of that was like a studied, just learned kind of thing from the bands that you liked. I think for me, it was learned more than anything else. I And I guess... I got it from the MC5 and from from the Rationals and and Frost and the Stooges and also from the from the British Invasion bands too. I got it from the Stones and and the Kinks and the Who. Of course the Who had always had a special relationship with Detroit. The I think Detroit the Detroit area was the first place that that the Who charted in on the radio and the who the first time they did Tommy was at the Grandy Ballroom. They, the, so the who and Detroit have always been kind of hand in hand. So all that goes into it also. And then things like John Lee Hooker, of course. Hey there, too punk for your job? Too professional to still be a punk? We want to hear about it. Share it with us at killedbydeskpodcast at gmail.com. Yo, any of you business owners out there, if you got some punk on your staff and you want some publicity, Send us a check. Hey, we cut a whole bunch out of this episode. For five bucks, you can get it at Patreon, killedbydust.com. So you went from Australia back to the States, back to Australia to go to school. So you visited first, went back, went back for school. Then you went back to the States again. What year was that? Was that, that obviously after you had been in a few bands, including Radio Birdman in Australia? What made you decide to move back? Was that just for, for, for career purposes? Yeah, yeah, I wanted to. I was particularly interested in aviation, and I had I had finished medical school and done an internship and a year, maybe one year of residency. And I was particularly interested in uh, flying because my my brother was my younger brother had uh, joined the Air Force and he was in the jet program and he sort of following his career and watching what he was doing. I thought that looks really cool. I think I want to do that too. And how can I combine that with medicine? And the way I did that was to apply to, to be a flight surgeon, which in the Navy, they, they let the flight surgeons fly airplanes. So you go through flight school, you go through flight surgeon school, in Pensacola, and then they assign you to squadron 
and you're the squadron doctor. And but you're also air, you're also air crew and you fly too. So it's um, yeah, that was what I wanted. Yeah, it was perfect for me. So I thought, I'd do that. Why, why did the surgeons uh, fly uh, airplanes? Why why did they do that? The the theory is that they want you to understand what the pilots are are doing, what their environment is, the context, and they want the pilots also to trust the flight surgeon. The, the whole idea is to keep these guys flying. You're really doing maintenance on their bodies is what it is and, and, and keep guys flying and, but take them off flight status if it's dangerous, if whatever the situation is dangerous. So it's a way of putting the flight surgeon through flight school is a way of, uh, of achieving that uh, empathy and also trust. And also, so, you get some knowledge probably for what what oh, they yeah. need to be physically, oh, yeah. what they need mentally. Yeah. Is there any? It's just so it's for the reason to know what the pilots are doing and to get their trust. But is there any mission that you would have flying as far as being a flight surgeon? Yeah, you're required to get a certain number of flight hours a month, and it's always as co-pilot or in the back seat. You're never pilot in command of a on a real mission. And it's, yeah, so you go up there and you do the job. It's like if there was an emergency situation, you would have to have the ability to take over. Is that part of it, maybe? That's part of it. And when the, the guy in the back seat has a lot to do. I mean, I was flying in Phantoms, and you've got the radars, you've got the weapon systems, you've got the communication, the, you do all the comm, and set up intercept geometry and all of that stuff so it's yeah it's a big job that's why they put two people in there so so i I read a little bit about naval medical surgeons in vietnam and like was there like back so back then they they, there was kind of a draft and it was hard to get through medical school without or get a job because you were going to be drafted was there an advantage to from a career standpoint to going into the military and doing that. And is that, does that set you up better to be an ER doctor? No, not at all. In fact, probably the opposite. It's, it, it delays. If you're going to have a, a real medical career or a traditional, let's say a traditional medical career, that's going to delay it significantly because the, the stuff that you do, as a Navy flight surgeon, doesn't really apply to anything else. Got I it. mean, except for being a total badass. I mean, that's kind of like... <laughs> well, no, I'm thinking I'm like to, this, to, go, to go surfing thing, too. Right? I, I was going to say like, that the social currency of that has to be huge, though. I, I'm a doctor who also <laughs> flies jets, and I'm a rock star. I mean, like, I feel like that's, like, <laughs> that's a pretty big triumvirate right there. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not something that I really thought about in that way. Because when you're doing it, you don't think about it in that way. Yeah, there's you a little did, bit of you, thrill though involved in every one of these things. Yeah, I love those that that stuff. I mean, I love airplanes. I've always loved airplanes ever since I was a kid, and it is it's great. I mean, I flew. I, I got a private pilot's license too, and I used to. Me and my wife used to go out and uh, get these acrobatic capable airplanes and go out and do loops and barrel rolls and mess around and I used to fly around a lot and I, on my spare time I would get in an airplane and go fly somewhere 
Is that so? So did all of these have that element of kind of an adrenaline junkie part of it? Or did you just not think of that? It was just gravitating towards the things that you liked? Yeah, just gravitating toward the things that I like. It was a activity that made me feel good. Was there a conquering fear element in it at all? I mean, like, obviously, for a lot of people playing in front of a, a huge amount of people is terrifying. I can assume being an ER doctor is terrifying. Being a pilot is terrifying. So I mean, it's terrifying to me. It's really <laughs> yeah, terrifying sir. if you don't understand it, if you don't know what you're doing. If, 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 you've got pro- if you're trained properly and you're ready for it, it's not terrifying. Of course, things happen in the course of the activity that can be terrifying. You know, the situations can come up that are really scary. But, you know, you can have an engine fire. This ha- happened to us once. Me and this other guy uh, was flying with. His name is Banzai. Uh, his or that's his call sign anyway. His his name is Mike Ramos. He 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 was. His ancestry is half Hispanic, half Japanese. So his call sign was Banzai. And we took off and had an right after takeoff had an explosion and an engine fire. And that's scary. I mean, I thought we were going to have to eject, but I had my hand on the handle. But was that off a carrier? No, that was a land base, but it was over water because we it, we were in actually we were over on Oahu and and Kaneohe, and the end of the runway is at the edge of the water, so we were over water then. But and then in the ER, you get cases that are you don't know what's going to come in next. I mean, anything can come in that door, and and it's. It, you might get something that you've never seen before and that's really hard to handle. And that's terrifying too. But the terror comes later. I mean, you, you go through it, you do the best you can, and then you think about it later. Mm-hmm. So that's that seems like the common thread there is that you have that ability to kind of triage everything and be like, all right, I'm jumping in. This is how things are handled, whether it's your amp not working right at, in front of a whole bunch of people, uh, a patient having issues or a flight issue, and and just being able to kind of stay cool under pressure. And that seems like the the common thread there in, in all of your career choices. I think that's a necessary element for success in these things is to just be able to function under pressure. Yeah. And is that uh, is that where the the Iceman call sign came from? Is that uh, is that where you earned yeah, that? Why, why were you Iceman? That's because. I was, and this is a complete misrepresentation of who I am, by the way. <laughs> but, and, and this was not fair. But, uh, but I w- this was on the ship. And my first operational tour of duty on, uh, on a ship. And you go to the wardroom and have dinner. And the same jokes the same stupid stuff every night. And I was thought not to have a good sense of humor. I was thought to be too serious. And it's that's like what they being, say about me. It's like, <laughs> being a, it's, it's like being in a van for six or eight hours a day for several weeks at a time on tour with a band. I mean, you, you get to a point where the jokes aren't funny anymore. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I had that, uh, reputation of being too serious and not having a, a good sense of humor. Actually, I've got a great sense of humor, but these guys just didn't understand it. <laughs> so, so that's how I got Iceman. Were you a little older than everyone else because of your previous, I mean, did you, how old were you when you joined the Navy? Yeah, I was pretty old. Uh, um, let's see. 
Yeah, probably 20, 27 or 28. Yeah. So you're dealing yeah. with a uh, stupid bro humor. <laughs> it's exactly. like you're a little bit older than that. And you're like, I don't have time for this. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I'm sure there's no one more immature than some of the bands that you played with and the people that, I mean, having all been in bands ourselves, we can certainly uh, speak to, to what, yeah, what that downtime is like in between playing is like with it's the hardest part of keeping the band together is probably dealing with the personalities and the idiots that you play with, no matter how well you mesh musically. Oh, exactly. same with podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. There you go. <laughs> so, so the myth is that, uh, they didn't use the Iceman moniker, you know, name anymore because of Top Gun. Is there really a direct connection or is that just like a myth building? There might be a connection. They, the movie people, I guess they're the team of, that were doing the research for the movie. They came out to our squadron and they stayed there for two weeks and they were like walking around with clipboards and talking to people. There's two of them and, and taking notes and taking photographs and, and watching everything, how we operated. And, and then they, when I got Iceman on my flight suit on the tag and, and I got Iceman on my helmet and I don't know if there was already an Iceman in the script or not. Probably there, there probably already was by that point, but in the, but they went away and then the movie came out about, I don't know, six months later or a year later. And there was a nice man in the movie. So coincidence? Yeah, probably. <laughs> we'll let you say it's a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, one time somebody made us watch that movie at a party, and then the TV turned red and wouldn't work after that. And I don't think that was a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> that movie was silly. There was, uh, uh, like I yeah. said, they made us watch it. Right. <laughs> we we wanted to watch Ben Casey. I was going to get to Ben Casey. <laughs> well, I'm getting to it now. <laughs> so so when you're thinking about getting into medicine, were you a Ben Casey or a Dr. Kildare fan? Neither. I didn't I didn't watch any of that stuff. I was a Hawaii Five O fan. <laughs> well, that was actually my question. So you ended up going to Australia. Is there an alternate universe where you went straight to Hawaii instead and wrote Aloha Steve and Dano with a with an all Hawaiian uh, rock and roll band? <laughs> yeah, I suppose there is. <laughs> it just seems like there's a long journey to get to Hawaii when you can kind of see it with the with your discography. Well, you know what? That's all from Rob, our singer, Rob. I was really twisting his arm to write music because he wasn't writing anything. And I was writing for the whole band and uh, saying, you got to write something. Just give me some lyrics or something. You know? <laughs> and and so he's watching Hawaii Five-0 on Sunday night, which he used to watch it every Sunday night, smoke pot and watch Hawaii Five-0. And, <laughs> and uh and so he just sort of made notes, the plot line of that particular episode. And then I saw him the next day and he goes, I, Hey, I wrote something. You want to read it? And, <laughs> and, and I looked at it and it was like, yeah, it's all about that episode of Y five O. And he wrote that. And I said, okay, I'll write some music for that. And we'll incorporate the theme in the middle break. And, and that's what we did. 
And uh, so that whole, the whole thing came from him. And uh, of course, we've been unable to, to get any royalties for that song for the last 10 or 15 years now, because the estate of Mort Stevens, he, he died, I think he died in the late 90s, the guy that wrote that theme song. And he had made an agreement with us. He wanted a third of the song. And we said, fine, he should get a third of the song. It's such a great theme. So that's what we've been doing for all these years is giving his publishing company a third of, the, of those royalties and the publishing. And now Sony owns it, Sony America. And Sony America came to us and said, we're taking 100%. And we said, no, you're not. And they said, yes, we are. And so all the publishing for that song has gone into some escrow account for ever since then. And we haven't seen a dime, which really upsets Rob. Because it's like, yeah, the one thing I write for the band and then, you know, <laughs> I get nothing. Well, Dave, it's good we never put out that Gilligan's Island song we worked on. We wrote that too. <laughs> I have to tell you, Dennis, my band did cover Burn, Your, Burn My Eye, but, but we didn't sell any copies of the album, so I don't owe you anything. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you owe him. Happy. You owe him. <laughs> Yeah, it's not my job to collect that stuff. <laughs> you were obviously young when you left when you left Michigan. Did you already have relationships with people like Dennis Thompson and, and, and Ron Ashton? Or was that something that kind of came later through Radio Birdman? So then they were like, Oh, we heard we heard you were from Michigan, like we're doing this tour. Can you want to play with us? Like how did that, that work out? Yeah, it came later. I, I I had not actually met any of those guys personally when I left to go to Australia when I was 18 years old, I, they were ahead of me in school. I went to actually the same junior high as Ron and Scott Ashton and Scott Morgan in, at Forsyth junior high. But Scotty was three years older than me. And Ron was five years older than me. And you just don't mix with people from those upper grades. As, that may have been, yeah, may as well have been 20 years difference. Yeah. And I had seen Iggy working at uh, Discount Records, not going go in the record store, and he's in there. And of course, he's not doing any work, but he's standing behind the counter and talking to girls because girls would go in there to talk to him. I mean, he was so attractive and so knew who he was. Oh, man, that guy's really cool. And I took guitar lessons from Dan Earlywine who was, I was 12 years old then, and Dan was the guitar player in a, in a band called The Prime Movers. And Iggy was the drummer. And Dan and his brother, Michael. and um, all, all, the, all the big, intimidating big, big kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was my guitar teacher for about three months, and then I quit taking lessons. But But yeah, then I came back, I think it was in 1975, 75 or 76, yeah, the end of 75 into 76, over that Christmas holiday period, I came back to Ann Arbor, and I was having drinks with my brother, and we noticed a handbill that said that Sonic's Rendezvous Band was playing, and it was that night, 
and it was sort of way out north of Ann Arbor in the middle of nowhere at, at this place called the Roadhouse. And so we should go. These guys are really good. My, my brother didn't know. He's a lot younger than me, so he hadn't seen these bands. And I go, yeah, it's Fred Smith and Scott Ashton is playing drums and Scott Morgan is, is singing. We got to go. So we got in the car and drove out there. And there's about 20 people, 25 people in this club. And uh, Sonic's Rendezvous Band is playing. They're fantastic. And Ron Ashton was sitting at a table just by himself, having drinks and sitting at a table by himself. And he's got that leather great coat, the German leather great coat, and the, the sunglasses. And that's him. And so I, I went over to talk to him. That's how I met him. And we exchanged phone numbers and started hanging out after that. I feel like there was some teacher in your junior high that influenced rock and roll in some way that we'll never know. <laughs> There's something. Yeah, something. <laughs> what what subject? Yeah, it's you know, that's it's a good question. Maybe it was coach for from <laughs> Coach Armstrong. <laughs> Keep building Ashton, the myth here. It's all Ashton, good. Get over here. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that story from from Please Kill Me, where they all try and go back to high school for a day and they all get kicked out of their old, their old high school. Right. <laughs> all right. Sorry. I'm done with music questions, Bill. You can, uh... <laughs> I was going to ask you something about what you said before about the kind of the young kids are doing so, so good in the medical field. I read somewhere that at least for military injuries, right, there was kind of like a third rule where like a third coming in weren't serious. A third were really serious. And a third were mortal. Do you think modern, that 50% of things changing has changed that people coming into the trauma ward, has it changed it significantly that isn't really recognized as far as just medicine itself and, and being able to save lives in that you know kind of emergency situation? I'm not sure what your question is. I'm just saying, like, it, are more people surviving the ER... Or coming out better oh, than before, oh, yeah. or is there well, more yeah. problems that are afflicting them than ever before? That depends on where the ER is. If, <laughs> if if you have an ER in a upper middle class suburb, it's going to be completely different than an ER down in uh, the east side of Detroit or or the west side of Chicago. It's it's just completely different. I mean, I worked in the ER at Detroit Receiving Hospital. Five, maybe you know, we were seeing average of five gunshot wounds a night on a night shift, and and then you go to another a suburban hospital somewhere, and you're mostly you're seeing colds and sprained ankles and sore throats and migraines and things like that. It's it it really varies depending on where you're where you're working, right? And, then, and they don't have the same access to the medicine and in two places too. So even if the field is advanced, it doesn't mean that this, your personal situation going into the ER is going to be any yeah. better. Yeah, right? that's right. And, and a lot of people, they can't get into a GP or a family doc. So they come to the ER. Where the, the ER is always open and they're going to see everybody that comes to the door. You might have to wait, but they're going to see everybody sooner or later that comes to the door. And no matter what, 
And that's a great thing. It's, it's, it should be treated more like a public utility, like gas, water, electricity, rather than, than, as, a, than as a private enterprise sort of thing, I think. Yeah. I dislocated my shoulder a few years ago, and I went to probably one of the best ERs in New York City. They finally got to me. But like I think three people got shot. There was a immense car crash, and this one doctor was running between the three. And then he's like, "Oh, put this on. All right, I'll be back." So it was, you know, it's pretty impressive, like to see. And he kept so cool. And when they finally got to uh, fix my arm or whatever, they, I was like. He's like, all right, I'm going to have the, the junior doctor do it. I'm just going to tell them what to do. And he was kind of had his coat on. He was ready to walk out the door. <laughs> so yeah. I was yeah. pretty impressed with how everyone's be able to take that kind of stress. Yeah. I mean, uh, dislocated shoulder is one of the nicest things that comes in. I mean, I really, it's, right. it's, it's really <laughs> great to, because it's, they're, they're fun to put in. Um, <laughs> fun and, for. If you do it right, it's fun for you too. You know, I, I, I like to use drugs for that. And, uh, they, they gave me minimal drugs. <laughs> well, they, actually, the poor junior doctor gave me the whole spiel how they're going to put me under. And then the, the senior guy came in and he's like, nah, it'll take forever. Just, it'll be fine. <laughs> it'll be fine. Yeah. Easy he's like, I got, a, to, I got a date here. <laughs> easy for him to say. <laughs> it, it was fine. They did a great job. <laughs> How did but, you dislocate uh, your shoulder? But no, uh, it's, it's, it's a it's a really good thing to do because you fix you you have a problem. It's a very quick procedure. It's easy, and you actually fix the problem. Oh, and you could see it. You could probably see it on my face as soon yeah, as it get, like popped right back in there. That, <laughs> you get somebody that comes in with their diabetes because they haven't they don't bother to take their insulin and their blood sugar is five hundred. And what's it supposed to be? They're not feeling well. And it's a hundred is normal. And, and so that's not something that you can fix and it's not as much fun. I I can give you a tip, Charlie. Yeah. Uh, If you, if you're going to fall down on your side, don't try to catch yourself with your arm. Just (laughs) roll into it. Get a couple of scrapes. It's worth it. That's what Captain Kirk did. (laughs) In martial arts, they teach that how to fall. And how to fall. They teach that on Star Trek too. Yeah, it's, it's really worth knowing. That's a good skill to it's know. A, it's like uh, like water or something, right? Like, I fell let, on the ice. I fell on the you. ice. I fell on the ice this morning. I was walking the dogs, and I uh, I was wearing uh, boots where the treads worn down, and I slipped, and I I fell right on my tailbone, and I just it's been bugging me all day. <laughs> and of course, I did the. I think what happens a lot is I put my instinctively put my arms back behind me. And I think a lot of people break their wrists like that because yeah, you try don't do and that. brace that's, yourself that's that way. What, that's kind of what I did. So I think what happens though, if you're inebriated, I think you kind of normally roll into that. So like drunk guys don't get those things. Well, that's like the car accident thing with drunk people too. when you broke, chuck, chuck, braided your shoulder? If I, if I was, I probably would have been okay. I probably would have been fine. I would have had a couple of scratches. <laughs> For once, it didn't work in my favor. <laughs> So Dennis, is there truth to the to the idea of that July effect where people are better or worse off going to the hospital when all the new doctors are are learning on the job? That's been studied and although people say that and it's widely believed, there's never been any evidence to back that up as far as actual outcomes. Cuz even though there's new guys that are they just finished medical school and now they're interns they're still, we know 
that these guys need to be supervised really closely. And so that it compensates for it. So yeah, it's, it's not like they can get, it's not like a, a bad haircut. I mean, there's someone overseeing that can fix anything for the most part before it goes horribly wrong. Yeah. They watch, what, watch them really closely at that, at that time, you when, know, and, when, and as an intern or, or, or a junior resident it becomes more experienced and, and knowledgeable and has seen more things you sort of, and it, the, the doctors that are supervising them gradually give them more responsibility as they can handle it. Doesn't always work out, but but it's I, I don't think that July effect is that big of a thing. There's also a myth that on the full moon, crazies come to the ER. That that's when you get all of the decompensated paranoid schizophrenics and people that are really sociopathic and weird and, and nurses a lot of nurses strongly believe that this is true but again it's never been able to be proven i i would i actually believe that my my mother's a psychiatric nurse and she will attest to that absolutely <laughs> why is it just the nurses <laughs> only the That's ones that didn't jump out of a plane without a parachute <laughs> do you ever get to run a decompression chamber <laughs> Did he jump out of the plane without a parachute or did his parachute no, just no, fail? No, it, did, it, did, it didn't open. He had a parachute. Yeah, right, right. It didn't <laughs> open. That's, okay, that's, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good distinction. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, did you ever get to, to run a decompression chamber? This is just something I'm interested in, like Dave's record collection. You mean for, for people that have the bends? Yeah, yeah, because they have one in the hospital that I was in. And they then, have yeah, one and in, that's a, actually, in an engineer's apartment. Yeah, no, I know. No, that's a sensory deprivation chamber. Yeah, but they, they were just telling—they were telling me they use it for all kinds of therapy now, not just the bends. So, like, that's diabetes they got not and, enough people coming into the bends, so they had to figure out how to use it. I, oh, yeah, no, I think it's the only place on the East Coast that you can go. <laughs> no, I never ran one of those. So, so like, if someone got the, but in the Navy though, if someone got the bends, what would they just fly them somewhere? Yeah, well, yes. You would you'd get them to the nearest decompression chamber if they had the, if they really had the bends. Flying them is bad because you're doing the opposite. And if you've been di- if you've been diving, there's a certain amount of time that you shouldn't fly because airline cabins are pressurized to either somewhere between five thousand and eight thousand feet, and it just makes it worse. Mm. I've heard that I, we, so uh, funny enough, I, I work in PR and marketing and one of our clients is a hotel in Hawaii. And I think they tell people that they can't go diving the day that they're leaving. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm thinking about frogmen. Like, do they go deep enough for that to be a danger most of the time? Or is this just like treasure hunter problem? Yeah, but it, they, they do go deep. And what they have to do is ascend in stages. You can't come up all the way all at once they go up 20 or 30 feet and then they got to stop for a while and that's what that's what Roebling should have done yeah it's according to for sure well he didn't know better though yeah but he was smart enough he should have figured it out (laughs) he just dissed a bunch (laughs) of engineers there charlie (laughs) also we're talking about the brooklyn bridge when i want a doctor i talk to an engineer and when i (laughs) when i want a lawyer i talk to a mathematician Stupid. So I want to go back to coffee uh, just to wrap things up because I, I want stupid. to. So I was wondering, I, where, Charlie, where do you live? Do you live in Newark? No, I live in Queens. Well, you live in Queens, right? Right. I 
my wife uh, lived in Brooklyn for 20 years. I was in Brooklyn this morning. And we just had her daughter was just out here visiting and she went back to Brooklyn yesterday. There's goddamn hipsters all over the place now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Williamsburg. Yeah. So, so different. But they, there's a flight now from Honolulu to JFK Direct. They got one to Boston too. It's the, it's the longest domestic flight in the world. Yeah, I haven't done that one yet. We usually do the the JFK to Los Angeles and then Los Angeles to Honolulu. And that's, that's it, it's nice to break that up a little bit because otherwise it is a little too much. When do you go to Hawaii again, Dave? I want to go. I don't know. Well, I mean, it, everything's been closed for so long. I mean, the one of the hotels I work for, Dennis, is in Honolulu and it's right on the beach in Waikiki and it's awesome. But I haven't been back in a while. I haven't been back uh, since well before the pandemic, but I would love to go back. It's just a matter of... So you can get paid to go, theoretically? I can. I do. I get oh, a per diem. awesome. Wow. <laughs> My daughter just came in and said infuriated with hipsters. It's a Law and Hardy reference. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me proud. Yeah. Right on. So with the coffee, how did you learn how to do, how to, how to grow and roast the coffee and all the steps in that? Was it a lot of YouTube watching? Did you have a mentor that kind of came in and taught you how to do all of it? Well, both. I, I had, uh, you know, I did a lot of reading and I talked to people around here and that have coffee firms. And I, and I went to classes too. I went, I went to a couple of seminars and the Hawaii Department of Agriculture runs sort of classes and field trips and things like that. And I, I attended those. So it's, it sounds really easy compared to everything else you've done. <laughs> oh, yeah. there, it wasn't very stressful. <laughs> How about music stuff? I mean, you mentioned the a reissue of the new race album, anything else post the, the James Williamson album, anything else in the works? Yeah. I, I just finished a new album, a new solo album and um, it's finished mixing it last week and it's going to be going to mastering two weeks from today and hopefully get that out sometime this year great are you, you think you're going to tour on that or uh, are you are your well, touring days over hopefully yeah if, if things open up to the point where it's safe to book a tour the i'm not worried about touring but if i put a lot of money out there and then it canceled it'd be difficult yeah that seems to be that's happening happened, a lot that's happened to so many of my friends in the last year where they thought it was okay to go back to touring and they booked the tour and got the tickets and everything and then stuff cancels at the last minute yeah i've gotten several so, refunds i'm hoping that we'll get to tour but i don't know but the album's good it's um happy with that great and so i know people can go to dennistech.com and uh i know you have a, a shop there and and uh, a whole bunch of different stuff we didn't talk about uh about your painting as well are you still painting right now yeah i haven't painted anything for a while yeah i've been really busy with this album I was just say you got you got some things going on. You got an excuse. You're not really sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> you know, when I know when I retired from medicine, I couldn't believe that I ever had time to go to the hospital and go to work. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the first person to say that on this podcast. who's retired. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. That's great. That's really that's what I want to. That's where I want to go. I want to keep busy and prioritize like that. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I know everyone can go to TechCona. Uh, is it TechConaCoffee.com uh, yeah. to order coffee? And you can sh can you ship it worldwide? Yeah, we can. Shipping these days is 
international is ridiculously expensive. So it's uh, just a warning for that. that Don't expect it to be cheap shipping. It's probably 90% of our coffee goes to the mainland. And I'm sure it's absolutely worth it too. I mean, even with crazy shipping prices. It's pretty good coffee. (laughs) That's it. There's our commercial portion. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything we didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about, Dennis? God, good question. No. But I'll, I mean, tell I could, I, I'll tell you something. It's been great talking to you guys. I, same I feel here. Like, I feel like I'm with some friends and, 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 and it's just great. So thank that's, you. That's what we try to do. And you're definitely not the ice man. <laughs> <laughs> and you definitely have a sense of humor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's my, just, just my goal in these situations, not to fan out too hard because I've, I've been a fan of, <laughs> fan of your music well, for, never I'm, I'm 40 now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I try, but you know, it's like, you probably know, biting his fingernails here. Listen, I think Dennis gets it. He went up to Ron Ashton at the Sonic's Rendezvous band show. So I think he gets that's it right, a little bit. That's right. There you go. <laughs> totally. totally. <laughs> so I appreciate it. I'm, I'll look forward to that, to the solo album and the, and the uh, new race uh, reissue that I'll buy for the fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, this mastering job is really going to eclipse everything else. So you're going to, you're going to be happy with that. That's Dave, awesome. Dave, I mean, is, that, Dave is your merch. And, and Dave what? has the marketing background too. So <laughs> if you're, you'd be like, you need help with the coffee. I sell let me this? Know. Now, I can market it for himself. That's true. <laughs> well, I'll buy this other record. <laughs> <laughs> That's where all my money goes. <laughs> well, Dennis, awesome. thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Dave, Bill, Charlie. Thanks Bye. a lot. That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here and your mom is calling jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses wondering where you've been. Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com.